0: Right now, you can get an exclusive twenty percent off your first order at ThriveCosmetics.com slash thrive. That's thrive cosmetics. c a u s e m e t i c s. dot com slash thrive for twenty percent off your first order.
1: Hey guys, this is Jazzy Allen Lord, and you're listening to Rebel Radio. Fuck you, Josh. <laughs>
0: What's up, this is Rebel Radio. What up, what up, this is DJ Newmark. This is Tina Butterwolf. It's your boy, it's okay. Keep checking out
1: Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Ah. Rebel
0: Radio
2: is going
1: down. Would
3: you say Rebel Radio?
2: Oh, wait, let's do it again. R-R-
3: Rebel Radio. What's up, Rebels? Welcome back to Rebel Radio, the weekly show where I bring you the Rebels who are shaping our culture. I'm your host, Josh Levine. With me this week is Jazare Allen Lord. Ghazare goes by the title of sneaker strategist. She is uh, works with a lot of the big sneaker companies. She designed her own sneaker for Reebok. And she's an advocate, a voice of diversity and inclusion, bringing women, bringing people of color into the sneaker conversation. Um, and uh, beyond that, you know, she's, she's going to give us some great lessons about integrity, about you know, believing in her vision, not falling for the okie doke—some important stuff we can take from this one. And for the sneakerheads listening, uh, we get into some nitty-gritty about sneaker business and all that. I think you're gonna like it. Let's get into it right now. That's good. Yeah, we got to have our. I mean, it's important to have your workspace like right for you, but now you have to have it right for Zoom too. And, uh, you know, we're kind of on stage all the time or with all these calls.
1: You know, I think it started like for me because there's this just, traditional setup that people are used to seeing if you're in sneakers. And right. Right. So of course. I was like, okay, let me build one of these walls because like, apparently I'm not really about that life unless I have <laughs> one of these little walls. So of course, that's how it started. Um, but now that I'm here all the time, it definitely is, um, nice to have a, just place to film, you know, because everything is recorded on the internet now.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for making time for doing this. I know we just met each other. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll say, I know it's popular. We love to all complain about social media, but to me, this is like one of the great things about social media is that, you know, I was on LinkedIn one day, saw you and you, you had the title sneaker strategist, which I had never seen before. And I was like, that's, uh, seems like somebody I would like to know. So I hit you up and now here we are. And, and, um, you know, that's something that never could have happened 10, 10, years ago or more, you know, previous generations never had those kind of opportunities. And so I'm thankful for that. Um, and I'm thankful for you for making time to talk to me.
1: Of course. And I agree. I, I think I have said many times in interviews that in the beginning of my career, I would say 50% of my inbound projects came from people I knew on Twitter. Um, and we're just having conversations with and a much different Twitter space back then in 2006, 2007. But um, that energy is still so true. I feel that same energy in Clubhouse now, ironically, Mm -hmm. like um, that very early adopter, like opens the conversation, opens the connection type of vibe before the space is super crowded.
3: This episode of Rebel Radio is brought to you by Fiverr. Man, 2020 has changed so much about how we work. Um, actually, uh, for a lot of companies, they're catching up to the way that I've worked for close to a couple decades now, where you know it's just about finding the right people to get the job done. More and more companies are turning to freelancers, um, especially for digital services graphic design, copywriting, web building, film editing, all that stuff. And Fiverr is just a terrific resource for finding freelancers. Um, They make it, uh, they they have, first of all, they have a global network of on-demand freelance talent. So whether you're launching your first business, scaling a business, trying to um, outsource and, and optimize the way you get things done, Fiverr makes it easy. You can customize your search, uh, right now, we're looking for digital marketers for uh, for a couple projects. If you if you're a digital marketer, uh, hit us up or, or apply on Fiverr. We're using it, and it lets us search by the service we need, the, the deadline, the price. We can read seller reviews. Um, there's excellent 24/7 customer service. When we have questions, they get right back to us, and ultimately, it gives us a network of talent that we can count on. Freelancers besides us work with some of the most influential brands all over the world and uh and the, the platform is flexible to accommodate however you want to do your business check out fiverr.com and get 10 percent off your first order by using my code rebel radio find all the digital services you need in one place at f-i-v-e-r-r.com code rebel again that's fiverr.com code REBELRADIO. Well, let's talk about you because like I said, I, I was, uh, you know, I was drawn to your profile and um, and then, you know, once we started talking, I think sne- sneaker strategist really only scratches the surface of what you do. And so I would love to just um, and I think this is a challenge for a lot of us that are have multiple hustles, multiple talents. Um, you know, it's a very uh, current way to get down, which is just not that you have this one career path that guides you through your whole life. So um, like, how do you explain to your mom or your mom's friends what you do for a living?
1: It's ironic because it's just because of the Reebok shoe last year that now my mom can just be like, (laughs) my daughter designed shoes. And it's like, No, I did one shoe in 15 years, Like I don't design shoes. But before that, it was, I mean, incredibly difficult. My parents, I would just tell them that I was a writer, which Mm -hmm. was cool for a long time, because I was mainly in the media and journalism space. But you know, media shifted with YouTube and video coming into play and we kind of lost editorial. And then I started to do video work and they're like, okay, so are you a TV host now on the internet? Like, (laughs) what does that mean? Like, you know, um, and for me, we talk about like how it's a current, it's very current to not necessarily want to be known as, as one thing but for in my journey it was not wanting to get locked into something that i was going to age out of mm. and consistently trying to shift um, i like to call it redesigning my dreams
2: mm-hmm. and figuring
1: out how it's going to play out so at kicks on fire under the complex umbrella approaching 30 i understood that you know after 30 like i don't think that 18 young 18 year olds are going to really about the things that I'm writing right. um, because of my age. And then I don't know how much influencer work I'm going to be able to do after like a 35,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and starting to figure out what does that look like. So if I'm not doing this anymore, what pieces can I hold on to from this life that I love that I can then translate into something new, um, which has led me to, to bounce around um, from media to, brand activation to event production to styling, you know, um, to just de- that led me to design and manufacturing and visual merchandising and buying and right. uh, all of these different types of, of things that that touch the journey.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And I think that, you know, the age thing is really important. And, um, you know, it's interesting, because I think that you know again previous generations or that more corporate uh uh existence you know th- that stuff has a very different meaning right and like I, you know I, a friend of mine um said to me years ago that the you know the difference with our generation is that we wear the same shoes as our kids right but we don't wear the same shoes as our parents yeah. um and so uh, and so I, you know, I think that it, it does change things and it makes it maybe harder in some ways for those of us who are in it to, um, because we're so, I mean, it's good and bad, right? It, on the one hand, I think you can, uh, you know, you can probably relate to 18 year olds in a way that, you know, maybe previous generations couldn't because there is this, you know, some amount of shared experience um and common language and all that and then on the other hand that also might lead us to miss the cues about how things are changing and and different and uh, you know i'm you know i walked down fairfax and i'm hyper aware that even though i'm wearing jordans like i have a very different life than most of these kids that are standing out in front of supreme and you know uh, for example i would never stand out in front of supreme or any other store for anything right like and that's just not part of how, you know, I was brought up to think about things. Um, so, yeah. You I, know,
1: that's, that's very true. My 18 year old, my 18 year old and I wear the same shoes, but I don't know any of the songs he's playing right. when he's cleaning the kitchen. You know, right. I don't know any of the artists he's listening to. Um, he's a, a, a young TikTok influencer. That's a platform mm-hmm. I'm not even on, you know? Sure. Uh, and so it's, It is just like, there's things that we live in the same world for, you know, so the things that you see on the blogs, you know, whatever is on complex, what's on the shade room, things happening in sports, you know, those types of things we live in the same world as to your point, our parents don't live in that world, but then there's a whole different life, you know, to your point for kids under 22. Yeah. that totally operate very differently. On the business side of that, because I'm working on influencer campaigns so much now, the brands oftentimes want somebody from that demographic to be speaking to them. Sure. And so it's looking for that 25 and under, you know, woman from this city that wears this size or whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and with men, it's a little bit different we see men being able to age kind of gracefully in sneakers and, and continue through, but with women, it's there is a cap, you know, yeah. um, and, and that's what really prompted me to want to figure out how I could use my brain outside of singing and dancing on the internet.
2: In
3: sneakers.
2: Uh-huh. Uh,
3: right. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. That's so interesting. And I think, you know, especially cause I, you know, we both work with, with big brands, um, And, you know, that's very what you just said is so counter to the way that marketers think about demographics. Right. And, um, you know, and and I think sneakers is probably the um, epitome of of how culture crosses demographics. Right. In ways that are really foreign to to most marketers Um, and you know, and it's, you know, we think of a lot of ways, you know, music as that cultural connectivity. But I think to your point, like our, our music tastes are very different, right, generationally. And, you know, there just aren't a lot of 40 year olds that are checking for the latest hip hop, right? Like we have, we have our own hip hop that speaks mm-hmm. to our generation. Um, but sneakers is a little bit different. Right, because again we're, we're all wearing Jordans in the Air Force and you know y- you know, I I uh uh never was a Yeezy fan, but um especially when I noticed that like all of a sudden everyone I'm seeing wearing Yeezys is fifty year old white men. Right? Like in and, and it's like
1: the new Concord, you know. Yeah. I yeah. Like the new, I mean, I mean, Jordan One is having a, a moment too. It's like sure. Jordan One and the Yeezy, right. and that's the the hype uniform. And exactly. that's, you know, we saw that shift in when retro started coming heavy, and like, oh my gosh, everybody and their mom wears Elevens now. Like, yeah. those shoes used to sit on the shelf. So, you know, Air Force Ones, like when I was coming up, those were like laughed at until geiger and shoe surgeon you know did the misplaced checks and kind of transformed that silhouette and Mm -hmm. then we see off-white do them and then we see them have a moment again before that nobody would touch those shoes they were like looked at a kind of trashy um right and so you know it is now a dirty air force one is like the young you know, very rich girls' uniform, like a mm-hmm. dirty Air Force one and a pair of denim shorts and some boxer <laughs> braids, if you will.
3: Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so crazy. Um, well, so, so let's talk about you. Tell me, um, how this all started for you. First of all, I want to go back to, to the very beginning, uh, and learn a little bit about who you are. Do you remember the first record you ever bought for yourself?
1: It was either common uh, resurrection, maybe Illmatic, or the E forty in the click.
0: But you can
2: call me Slurricane. Slurricane, strong enough.
3: oh nice yeah
1: um it was one of those three i mean it all
3: three of, of three. those are are incredible places to start a, a musical <laughs> journey um i'm personally uh uh e forty is is probably my favorite rapper and um you know i we we- talk, i could i can go a whole hour on e forty so we'll leave it at that but um but that's exciting um and then how did you do you remember your first sneakers that you cared about or that you picked out or your introduction uh, to sneakers? Pair
1: of blue, yeah, low top pair of blue Chucks. Mm-hmm. I grew up in San Diego, and for me, it was—you know—we we talk a lot about this mental health connection to streetwear and sneaker culture, um, and its connection to worth and, and status um, that yeah. we're kind of seeing bubbling bubbling now. Yeah. And for me, a young black girl being bused into school, a predominantly white school. Um, with a single mom, you know, who was, my mom was 18 when she had me. Right. And so she's raising me, and she didn't have $45 for a pair of chucks. And so I had, like, Adidas with four stripes and fake Puma Clydes and all of that, you know. Yep. And I would look at PE, I would sit in PE, and I would see other girls, and they all had one of two shoes. They had the low-top blue chucks, or they had Jack Purcells, like white Jack Purcells. And I, that was like a dream shoe to me, just to be able to fit in, um, you know, to feel like I belonged, to feel like I wasn't an outsider amongst so many other pieces of my life that made me an outsider in the mm-hmm. community. Um, so it, it always was about, for me, it started with like wanting to fit in. Um, The aesthetic though was very true to who I was as a person. Like I wasn't a a girly girl in the traditional sense of that word. Um, I always wore sweatpants and sneakers and t-shirts. I always made my own clothes with like puff paint. Uh-huh. Because I my mom couldn't like afford the t shirts with the Janet Jackson t shirts, so I'd like make my own.
2: Right.
1: Um and it was that that vibe that I kind of came into. Punky Brewster was my first style icon. So I wore mismatched socks all the time, like nice. wanting to be like her and mismatched shoes and and all of that. Um and I you know, I, I came in I have four brothers and my dad was big into Jordans, like big into being like 90s 90s fly dude you know mm-hmm. um, at the time
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so he he kind of introduced me to jordan's i always like shoot like the sneakers going into high school then it became like the stack houses the questions um in high school in high school and then looking at my dad's Jordans, and then in my first job um i worked in the mall across from Foot Locker and then i put the i.e. 11 loaves on layaway Mm. at Foot Locker, they were $75. um, And I went down there every two weeks with $20 (laughs) to put on my layaway from my paycheck. And that was the first pair that that I bought for myself. And from there, it it shifted to just like, I like sneakers and I wear these at school um, Mm. to like, I'm going to start hunting them down. Um, And that was more of the SB. I liked Jordans, but it wasn't something I wanted to hunt for, per se. Right. I really loved the storytelling um, of Nike SB, and I was skating also by this time. Um, mm-hmm. So I was wearing like Osiris, DVS, Etnies, um, and SBs when they started to come into the fold. And fell in love and began my journey there on ISS. On like the sneaker Mm forum on nike talk um on female sneaker fiends, and just doing trades going to meetups um going to kendo on melrose Mm -hmm. you know camping out and and all of that it's so funny to think that a store like kendo on melrose which specifically only sold sizes i think four to nine
2: Mm. and
1: was geared towards women you know, to only serve smaller sizes, how disruptive that concept would be today.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. Because like they weren't a women's boutique. Like they just carried small sizes of all the shoes across mm. the lines. So it wasn't like we were just serving you. That's not, not Lady Foot Locker. It's not right, right, 602. Right, right. Sure. You yeah. know, um, it could be a kid's boutique. It could be anything. It's just only for small sizes. And really that's what combination, Um, which was just launched a couple months ago is a sourcing site for women to find a multiple amount of variety in one place in our size run. Hmm.
3: Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, And it's funny, you know, hearing you talk, I'm, I'm, you know, a generation ahead of you. Uh, You know, my, my first sneakers were definitely Chucks, black Chucks is all we wore. And they were, um, they were, I think they were $12. Um, which was still like, you know, you kind of got one new pair each school year or whatever. And, uh, and then, you know, I remember when, you know, we, when there started to be additional options, right. When there was shell toes and Clydes and, you know, um, uh, for me, the first pair I got excited about was Nike legends,
2: which,
3: um, I, which I'm, I'm. I'm curious why they haven't reissued, but, uh, but those lasted like a year or two before they brought out Air Force One, which kind of pushed it out of the way. And so I, you know, I remember that, that business evolving sort of real time, you know, as I Mm -hmm. got older and, um, and, you know, and it's interesting if you think of it in that context that it goes from being this kind of uniform to being this expression of personal style where there's multiple colors and there's multiple you know, choices and people could kind of find their own way where I think, you know, before that it was this monolithic thing. Like you, you just only, you just wore the uniform or you didn't, um, yeah. And
1: they were like tennis shoes.
3: Yeah.
1: Right. Or like yeah, shoes yeah. for purpose, <clears throat> you know? And I think That's right. Jordan was so instrumental in, in shifting that perspective for us because be like Mike, you know, is, is one of the greatest campaigns that we've seen. It's the, the true nature of why we, we do this every day, right? Absolutely. It's like, there was something about Jordan that young people just latched onto and became that hero, that mm-hmm. hero piece in the culture. And you want to be like Mike, but then if you, you know, there's people that maybe don't relate to that story and then you have the shell toe Right. Which was like, okay, well, if you're in music or if you do hip hop, like this is your shoe. Yeah. So we see the uniform kind of breaking out into personality packs, if you will, of like, mm-hmm. okay, well, athletes are here and run DMC and the Shelto. That's going to be here. And then we have the Puma Clyde, which when I'm growing up, like that was the break dancer. or like the graffiti artist for sure so like if you're doing if this is your thing if you do art then you wear puma clives and it was an early signifier i felt Mm -hmm. of of who you were and at least being able to express this one piece of the community that you come from
3: absolutely so when does that at what point does that become a profession for you was there a moment when you decided you know, this is my path or or did it, how, how did that happen?
1: I'm still deciding, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) I keep trying, I keep trying to run out. I keep trying to leave and they keep calling me back like every time. Is that right? Yeah. It's, you know, um, I, I, I accidentally fell into the business because I was collecting and following sneaker culture. And one of, um, my friends in LA, he knew the founder of kicks on fire from AOL instant messenger and Khan, the founder, he told my friend Eric and he's like, "Do you know, a girl that collects speakers and mm. knows how to write because I want to hire a girl. And he understood very early on in sneaker blogging that a woman was going to up his profile from the rest of the outlet. Um, so my friend introduced us on AIM and he asked me like three questions like, do you like shoes? Are you a writer? Do you know what blogging is and mm-hmm. do you want to do it? You know? And I'm like, okay. And he said, I said, what do you want me to do? And he said, just write about the news that you see happening every day in speakers. And I'm like, okay, well, I do that anyway. Like I'm mm-hmm. reading that, those articles anyway. And I started as a part-time like junior copywriter at Kickstart Fire, um, which was at that time under the Complex Network with Nike Kits, the Shoe Game, Soul Collector. Um, I think that was they might have one other outlet, but they did not have Complex sneakers yet. We were right. their publishers for sneaker content. Sure. Um, that first couple of years was very slow, uh, 2006 to 2008 was really like just talking to my friends people I already knew that Mm -hmm. were into sneakers in 2008 there was this bubble that burst and sneakers just spilled into the world as a culture and it became no longer niche but was commercial and we saw Um, the Honey Nut Cheerio dancing in LeBron, you know, and he gets his own LeBron and I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Like there's so many things happening. That's just like, Oh wow. And it was so exciting, but it was, it hurt my heart too, you know?
3: Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk about that for a second, but, but, um, but what happened in, in that time? Why, what was it that pushed the culture into the mainstream was there like one kind of inflection point or what, what how did how did I think that happen? the
1: internet like social media because also when i the first couple of years there was no twitter right um there was definitely no instagram uh, people weren't using youtube in an editorial capacity yeah so after instagram twitter allowed us to start having conversations about sneakers and like growing that community, if you will. Yeah. Um. So I saw action there first. that. I I saw way more conversations happening around sneakers. And then I started to see more branded moments. Um, like instead of just sending us the shoe in a shoe box, now we're getting like a, a package,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and so more intention behind media seating. The trip started to change. Mm-hmm. So instead of just like bringing us to the office, now we're designing shoes by the pool and, you know, like all kinds of other stuff and, uh, and Meek Mill is there and like, you know, it's like, okay, this is, tr- this is different. Um, where that wasn't how it was when it started. And then when Instagram happened, it was over. Like yeah. the amount of Jordans I would see on the feed, like over. And then it it started... Bubbling from there. First, I started seeing a sock industry pop up.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then we see like odd socks, happy socks, stamp socks, like, you know, and then you start to see the custom socks that match the colorways. Then you start to see Foot Action and Foot Locker doing sneaker match, you know, t shirts. So designing against the shoes. Um, and then way more just community presence not involvement i would say but just like a presence um of intentionally trying to market which we never saw before we never saw you would get a press release with like a drop box of four pictures mm-hmm. you know that was shot in studio
2: mm-hmm. now
1: the shit comes with like a box with a screen inside and like you know
2: <laughs> right there's a sure. golden
1: ticket there's like all kind of stuff and that and that really happened in, in that moment. Kobe's, you know, Kobe's were really big. LeBron was his, uh, uh, she was just coming out, was really big also.
2: Mm-hmm. So we're
1: also seeing new franchises being built outside of just Jordan.
0: You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast.
3: You know, one thing that always stands out to me is I talk to um, brands, like I always hold up the sneaker companies as examples of doing a really good job listening to your customer. And I think that's, um, and I know, you know, I'm sure they are mistakes along the way as well, but, but I think, you know, as a rule, I think those companies really set the bar for how to listen to your customer and and let them kind of be part of the journey Um, Mm -hmm. in a way that's really difficult for, you know, the other companies that, that I work with, you know, the soda and liquor and cars and like those, you know, they tend to do a really bad job of that. Um,
1: Well, I think it's also the point of, you know, they, they tell really great stories, but, there is this something that you said earlier like sneakers really is the conversion conversion point of all of these industries so you know i think a lot of the stories they tell they hit really well but Mm -hmm. there are some that kind of miss the mark because unfortunately like you can't in sneakers you can't tell a story that's going to talk to everybody because it is this the centerpiece between Mm -hmm. athletics performance fashion high fashion streetwear tennis you know, like even different type hiking, uh, leisure, all of these things. So it's impossible, you know, to, to hit every time for everyone.
3: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, uh, it stands out to me the, so correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Kobe had a shoe out first that was not popular. Um, The
1: crazy eight.
3: The, yeah. Was that, was it it was that was that was adidas
2: mm-hmm.
3: and then and then kanye had a shoe with nike right that didn't do very well um mm-hmm. and you know and i think that's really interesting if you think about you know learning from failure and, and adapting and you know in both of and those come those went opposite directions right like one went nike to adidas the other went adidas to nike um and I think you know that's that's something that like is kind of unique that you wouldn't see a lot of brands say, well, this celebrity failed with our competitor, so we're going to sign them. Right? Mm-hmm. It's usually like, oh, that person can't sell a product, so we're we're going to stay away from them. Um, and and I think that's a really interesting kind of way to operate.
1: Yeah, I mean, what would we have seen if Steph Curry went with Nike? Right. Um, You know, and I think that the brands themselves have these legacies um, of who they are and what that story is that they're telling. And when all of those pieces align correctly, then, you know, Nike has set the bar of excellence. You know, just do it. Go out and be the best. Like, you know, go as hard as you can go. And Jordan and Kobe really sat right in that messaging,
2: mm-hmm. and so
1: finding that right fit um, between brand collaborator product and brand, I think is is where is why it's easier in sneaker culture to not just like cancel somebody out, right? Because just because it didn't work here doesn't mean that it doesn't work, but right. those pieces weren't put together. I mean. Steph Curry and Under Armour, Under Armour has no trust in in the community outside of performance. And when we look at the talent, Steph Curry is not, he's dope. I love him. He's not somebody that young kids want to be. Right. And so, you know, they don't want to be like Steph. There is no, um, there's no drive to do that. They love him and they'll watch him, but there is no, there is no hero moment happening there. Um, and when we, those two things are just not a fit. And then the product is like, eh, you know? And so it's sad to think about what could have happened, you know, not to say his franchise would be equivalent to a Kobe franchise, but I'm sure that it, it, it may have come out looking a little bit more palatable for, for the sure. community because right now, nobody's talking about that.
3: Right. So as a as a strategist, as a consultant, you know, I think there's always that question of who can move product, right? And, you know, Stan Smith is my, maybe my favorite example because nobody knows that he's an athlete, mm-hmm. right? And I think even his autobiography is like, people think I'm a shoe. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's the number one selling sneaker of all time, right? And I don't think you, I, so, I mean, that's obviously that that's maybe a bad example because it's so old that, and and I don't think Stan Smith's, you know, celebrity as a tennis player is what sold that shoe, but, you know, but it's easy to look back in hindsight and say, well, yeah, Steph, you know, Stefan Under Armour is maybe not the best matchup or, uh, you know, but how do you do that looking forward? How do you look at, uh, personality and say this person can or cannot move product or this is what it's going to take to to bring it out of them
1: i always look at who their community is i'm looking for somebody that has a strong community that trusts them already yeah particularly in this moment gen z are making the purchasing decisions and aside from that they're known as the truth seekers they are deep diving. And aside from being truth speakers, they bang all their buck on social justice, regardless Mm -hmm. of, you know, if that looks like, well, justice, period, if it looks like climate change, gender issues, so many things, they actually care. Um, And we came up in a time where there was definitely a separation between person and brand. um, And it we didn't really look deeper, you know, we let Beyonce and Ho like not help not talk to us about <laughs> their, their personal lives, like, and yeah. we're used to that. And that's okay. But the next generation is not and they want to know the truth about who you are, and who your brand is, and their followers understand that as well. So if we're looking at who has control of the dollar, it's important to not be looking at how, you know, what their engagement is or how many numbers that they have because if somebody with 100,000 followers could have zero trust in that with their community and they're not right. going to convert the dollar, um, they might like it a few times, but they're not going to drive a new purchase because they don't believe them. So, so that truth telling piece is, is so critical.
3: So where do you find that if it's not in the analytics, right? Because that's what marketers go to is like, let's pull the analytics and what kind of engagement rate does this person have or how many followers, right? For the people that really don't know what they're doing. So if it's not on the spreadsheet, where where do you find it?
1: I mean, you got to do what we used to do in the olden days and keep your <laughs> ear to the ground and just yeah. like be in the field. Yeah. But not even just being in the field, like I think there are so many people that work in the business that look like me that consistently are not in the room. Yeah. And so I think that that is, you know, if we want to solve problems, it starts with like consulting, like this isn't working, going to somebody that is on, on the ground. So when I'm staffing projects and I get an inbound project for something that doesn't fit a story that I can tell authentically, I hire out from somebody Mm -hmm. from that community. Um, And, you know, so working with CONCACAF who about a year and a half ago, and predominantly this is Latinx women that want to be involved in soccer. You know, I don't play soccer and I'm not from a Latin community. So the team I built around that, all of them were. Mm -hmm. And so to understand, you know, going into the community and working with the community over a long period of time and that cultural education piece for whatever story you're trying to tell, I think is, is super important because we can't just walk it like I can't tell a story about. whoever Billy Eilish, like I'm not listening to the music, right. I'm not sure. in the age group like they're so, you know, yeah, so far from me, but the general standard of how agency relationships typically work and in house works is exactly what you said. We're going to pull up this, you know, this algorithm, put a couple things in with some keywords. These are the 10 people it said we should work with. Mm
2: -hmm. Here's
1: two, here's two agencies in our, in our, that are already cleared by compliance for us, you know, and let's just go. Yeah. And it's that piece that needs so much more attention.
3: Yeah. What do you think? I mean, I, you know, I know you do a lot of work in, in diversity and inclusion. And as you said, bringing female voices and, and people of color into sneakers. Um, and, and, and you know, you talked about the justice as a priority culturally, right? And I, I think it's interesting. Like, on the one hand, you know, it's I, I'm happy that we've come to this point uh, as a society, that these are becoming values, that you know that can unite us um i also think you know it's weird in the sense that you know the civil rights and women's movement and these these movements in history did not include brands right and 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 i think you know now we have this expectation of uh of brands of corporate marketers to behave a certain way which is um I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But I find it just kind of curious that like brands have found their way into those bigger societal issues and I and you know at the same time they have, you know, they're bottom line driven, right? Um I don't know. I wonder if that ever kind of pops up for you that that, you know, all of this um all of this social progress is, is in some ways filtered through the lens of marketing.
1: I mean, that's. I, I I was watching the BET Awards and I don't necessarily care for, I can't remember, I think her name is Amanda something, but she's hosting it. But she said something that really resonated with me because it was around Juneteenth and she's like if we're not careful this thing is going to turn into memorial day or you know something like that um and people are going to be serving harriet teenies at the bar and there's going to be sure. like people, you know frat boys with afros coming in and like yeah. is this what we wanted right. you know like is, is this is this really where we were trying to go um and there is such this the fine line, I think it's twofold. One, uh, traditional brands that need to serve everybody, you know, and need to serve Americans as a whole, they, they're gonna have to take the steps and never have been charged or have held accountable for in any of these other movements, particularly in the 60s, right. you know, when there's still so much oppression, we're looking at, you know, colored mountains still. Right. Um, they are the, the level of accountability that they need to have was much less than, but today being able to talk to who everybody is and that's outside of color, but looking at gender, looking at accessibility, looking mm-hmm. at sexuality, you know, including all of these conversations, we're seeing them make the shifts that they need to, to make sure that they are speaking inclusively of all people. And then there is a subset of brands, particularly sneaker brands, because sneakers, unlike any other industry, culinary, tech, automotive, sneakers does have a significant cultural tie to the black community. And so there is a responsibility, unfortunately at, you know that sneaker that sneaker brands, have this cultural storytelling and this lineage to this community, but there is no council, if you will, or like, you know, there's no official um, way to, you know, check to make sure that the equity is there. And up until now, it hasn't really been, we've seen stories come out before this moment. But the change has been very slow um, until now.
3: Yeah, I agree. Although I think it's, you know, some of that goes back to what I was saying earlier about, um, uh, about listening to your customers, right? Like, you know, you know, I grew up and there were definitely cars that had more meaning in black communities than white. Right. And, you know, my white friends were looking at Chiracos and golfs and whatever. And, my black friends were looking at—I uh, don't remember what it was—in the late '80s, but you know, Monte Carlos and and uh, Rivieras or whatever. And um, but
1: but there wasn't like black talent, leading right? But but that's what I was gonna the, say is but all of those, yeah.
3: But then, but here's my point though: that car companies only ever thought about marketing to white men right and and even though and I've you know I've worked with half a dozen car companies throughout my career um you know I've done more automotive marketing than anything else and and they are you know women make most of the purchasing decisions on cars and yet car companies are terrified of a car being branded a, a chick car right uh that they just think that you know that means it won't sell and so they're they're like it's in the fabric of the industry to be disconnected from the reality of consumers. Right. And, you know, Cadillac was a status symbol uh, at a certain point for, for black people as they got more affluence. Right. And yet it's a decades for Cadillac to recognize that and to start to think about, you know, the talent or the, or, or the positioning or, or any of that, right. They were, they were 20, 30 years behind. Um, and so, you know, I think that I don't know that there's anything inherent in the products. I think it's more about the people at the companies. And like you said, you know, there's a lot of work to be done even at the best companies. Um, you know, and I I know Nike has gotten a lot of criticism for being this very white, you know, uh, community up in portland you know white community inside of another white community um but they still do a much better job than almost every other company out there of listening and understanding who's using their products and why
1: you're right i think that outwardly the stories look great but it for me, it's hard when the people inside are very few and suffering. For sure. Um, and so you know, it's like, well, the fact that some of these groups inside exist or the fact that people, I mean, like last week, I know five Black people at Nike who quit. Right. Um, and so it's to see that the stories are hitting so hard on the outside, to see so many talent that are Black, And selling products, you know, on behalf of the brand, and then to look at who is inside and and working on it, to see that the headquarters for not just Nike but all of the major brands are in two cities with serious racial undertones in them. um, It just makes it hard to, you know, to complete the ecosystem. And I think at the end of the day, it's really about in any industry, not just sneakers, but making sure that we as people, as all people, can be contributors and not just consumers. Absolutely. And so in sneakers, it's very difficult to find that place where there is an open door for Black people or for women, period, Mm -hmm. to to excel, you know, in, in those same ways and to figure out what that pathway is.
3: No question. Um, <clears throat> shift gears for a minute. So I know you worked with Daryl from D, from Run DMC, um, yeah. uh, who is, uh, not only a musical hero, but a, a hero in sneakers, um, and really, you know, invented the category of, of musicians driving sneaker trends. Um,
1: the first like licensing situation we ever really incredible.
3: saw. <laughs> incredible. It was incredible then as I was experiencing it. It's incredible still to this day. Um, tell me about that experience. What'd you learn from Daryl? Um,
1: oh, so much. I mean, I actually, I continue to work with them through shake shake, uh, was jam master J's best friend and yeah. been with run DMC for years. And Shake um, and I have been working together for probably about seven years now, and across different types of projects. And so when he came to me with the store that he wanted to open with Daryl uh, Clicks, which, which was the first store we worked on, I was super excited to just get to know this this legacy of hip hop. Um, and you know, it's it, it, like you said, it's not just a sneaker hero, if you will. It's just somebody that my dad listens to and. It's yeah. such a cultural marker. The logo itself is recognizable globally and has yeah. been flipped so many times. So um, he was so nice just every time we're on the phone and we were going to go to Project for the first time to do all the buying for the store. And the greatest lesson I learned from him was walking the show with him. And I walked the show and other, other things with other talent many times in media and there is, a specific way that talent behaves on the floor and in group settings. Right. Um, and it, it can be elitist at times. Um, and I was expecting that, that regular what you're used to. I walked the floor with him and every 10 minutes, somebody stopped him. And he stopped for every single person mm-hmm. the entire day. He allowed them to tell him, the, their whole memory, their whole story, which was like, I saw you in 1982 with my sister and this, and then we would you know, yeah. I bought your shoes. I did, they, it's like a 20-minute story every time. And he was engaged, active listening. He conversed, I mean, every single person. Mm. Um, he took the time. And I was exhausted after. (laughs) I'm like, I mean, I was just like, we got to eat. Like, I'm starving. Like, can we, you know, can we go? Like, can we not stop? And he's like, no. Like, I I do this for everybody. Like, we're going to stop every time. And Uh, also, like, he was getting up at 5 a.m. and getting his workout in and taking meetings. Like, his work ethic, even at this point of his career, is insane. Um, and the passion that he really has for New York specifically, but the hip hop community and what's happening to hip hop and mm-hmm. the creative piece of it, um, is, is, a, was just amazing to be around.
3: That's really cool. That's so cool. Um, <clears throat> talk, talk about the collaboration with Reebok. I see you got, uh, some behind you. Um, yeah. and those are the
1: ones I wear. I okay. Have some clean ones here. Nice. <laughs> Beautiful.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, Thank you. How did? Uh, t- tell me about the experience. What? What did? What did you take from that? And what? What's it done for you since?
1: It was super interesting because you know people ask all the time like. Um, how many uh, blog posts do you, like, how do you get on, uh-huh. you
2: know, and Course. how does that
1: happen? Course. And I really just posted on Instagram. And aside from that, I had the authority of saying these things for so long in the space and the trust yeah. in my community. So I wasn't somebody that had 50,000 followers. I wasn't somebody that was billing herself as an influencer. Um, at that time, I didn't even own a business. I was still working at my job. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a, a girl who had a regular job with PTO, if you will, and, and just a member of the community. Um, and I posted a photo uh, sitting here, actually, before all this was here. And I was in my San Diego State um, hoodie, a pair of capa sweatpants, and my shack of and I said, I remember being bullied for dressing like this. And now girls wear $1,000 sweatpants and call it athleisure. Mm-hmm. And um, I tagged Reebok. And then somebody from Reebok saw it. They just started tagging other people and tagging other people and product designers, PR people on, on my post. And then the PLM from Reebok, uh, Reebok Women's DM'd me and asked me, She said, I see that you've been talking about women and speakers for a long time. Would you be willing to come into the office and have conversation with us? And so it started with internal kind of discovery on their end of just kind of that listening piece um, Mm -hmm. of talk to us about your pain points and what you've heard from the community Uh, At that time, I was really a megaphone for young women in sneakers. Mm. So I would see them talking about things. And because I knew that people were watching me, I would read, you know, I would retweet their stuff. I would talk about the issues that they were facing. I would amplify their pain points. And so I brought all that into the room. Like, this is what they want to see. This is what they're upset about. These are things I'm upset about. And then they said, well, would you do a shoe? and um i never had a sneaker dream you know Mm. i never came into this thinking like oh i wish i had my own sneaker um i never had really the artist or designer brain i I, I was a writer before and so when they said that i also didn't want to tell my own story um 90 of the times that brands do use black women they use light-skinned racially ambiguous women
3: and i didn't
1: want to keep contributing to the problem mm. and so i told them i if you want me to do a shoe i'll do one if you allow me to do the strategy and directional talent for a pack and you allow me to actually cast the pack of people that i actually know in sneakers because i can tell you my community will not believe this right if you put if, if i do this the way you want me to do it, they will not believe me and they know me and they trust me. Um, and I'm not going to do that to them. So So they said, okay.
3: Let let me stop you for a second because, um, you're saying something profound and and I don't want to overlook that, uh, which is that, you know, a lot of people would, um, just take the check, just, you know, be flattered, be validated feel like you know i've been trying to get on and this is my way on right and just and 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 also like assume that well these guys are a billion dollar company they obviously know something i don't um and so you know a a lot of people would not have asserted themselves in the way that you just described they would have just followed you know what was asked of them um so if you can put yourself back in that moment of deciding what you were going to say on that call or in that meeting, you know, how did you, where did that come from? How'd you find the, the strength to be able to, to speak up for what you knew?
1: You know what? It's because I didn't want it. <laughs> and honestly, like my heart is, is with the women that you just described Yeah, because yeah. I know women that have products in the world and were brought into rooms and they were specifically told you're going to do this in the women's line and you're going to use pink right do sure. you want to do it if, if you don't want to do it somebody else yeah will. we'll
3: find somebody else sure
1: mm-hmm. and i'm just like how are we this has to change at some point point. and so if i'm going to be asked like i don't even have a sneaker dream so for me i understood i you know it, it was just like, I'm not going to put my name on something that
2: mm-hmm. my
1: community is not going to believe. But I also understood everything you just said, the gravity of that point and the understanding of you got to walk away from things sometimes that are not going to further your personal mission. And for me, it's about right. looking. My personal mission is for the people behind me. Mm it's not for my my personal journey um you know it's to really tell their story it's to honor the the women that are next to me and behind me it's to make sure that other people that look like me can sit down so that i'm not working so hard um and all of those pieces so it's just me like one seat is not going to change anything and then i'm putting product to the world that isn't talking about anything i've been complaining about for 15 years so it was you know it was easy for me in that situation but i i I will say that it's been hard this year post the shoe Mm. because i have been approached by other brands and they have said that i'm going to run shoes in a women's size run and i'm going to use specific palettes that i refuse to use and i've had to say no and they weren't accommodating Mm -hmm. You know, so it has like it hurts this year because I want now I know the type of change and impact product can have right. in proving, you know, proving what there is no data to prove right now. So for me it was also about like the reason I wanted to do the shoe was to get the data. Yeah. Because there is no data around women in streetwear. Um and we're not asking the right questions or collecting the right, the right numbers. So,
3: yeah, no, that's great. It
1: was hard. No, I
3: I love it. I mean, that's what we're here to do is hard things. Right. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, again, so many people, here's the next thing people would sometimes do is they would say, well, let me get, let me get on first. And then I can bring people behind me, right? Or then I can make change once I get in. And I think that that, I mean, I think that's a fallacy. I think that um, you know, the, once you start to let things go, you've started that process, and you just let things go. And you know, how many, how many executives or politicians or you know, whoever got in because they thought they wanted to make change. And then they got into a system that's just bigger than them and it's too hard to fight it. And the, the perks become bigger and bigger and the, uh, the momentum kind of carries you. So I, I really think, you know, you have to do it from day one or it doesn't work.
1: You do. And also understanding what's going to keep you where you are because as soon as you do something that is off script, if you will, the community will stop believing you and they will see that uh, yeah. we're talking about particularly in sneakers a community of people that are built around authenticating you know and and right. figuring out what is fake and what is not and you're you can't get over on, on sneaker heads you mm-hmm. know in this particular mm-hmm maybe people that love sneakers those are that's a different set of people sure but people that actually follow the culture and the community those are people that could tell you how many stitches are in here and what's you know what fakes look like on the toe box and right
2: yep. why
1: this material is wrong you know and all of this, this. um and they see that in your personhood as well mm-hmm. so i also didn't want to risk that in in doing the shoe and thinking about what the stories people know me to be telling and what I hold true to my heart. And if I don't do it in this way, then I am going to be questioned.
3: If you're enjoying this one, um, we got some other sneaker folks on the show. If you wanna go back in the Rebel Radio archives, I had Josh Luber, the founder of StockX, which is now one of the biggest sneaker marketplaces online. Um, I had Eddie Cruz, the founder of Undefeated, one of the leading brands in sneaker culture. Um, I had Ryan Babenzian, the founder of Greats, uh, building a unique sneaker brand direct-to-consumer out of Brooklyn. Um, Anyway, you can go back and spend all day thinking about sneakers, listening to uh, Sneaker Talk on Rebel Radio. um well i know uh i know we gotta start wrapping up i don't want to keep you all day but you said something at the beginning about you know this explosion of of sneaker culture into the mainstream and that you know on some level that hurts your heart um i can definitely relate to that i've felt that uh many many times about hip-hop and uh and other things graffiti and you know other things that that i love um uh but, you know, talk to me about the future, right? How does it, where, where do we go from here when there's, there's a new drop every day, there's new collabs constantly, you know, when we, you know, when this whole thing started, you had to drive from city to city and go digging. You had to, you know, be cool with the guy, the manager and, and get the back room stock Right. And now we have StockX and Goat and Grailed and, and you know, uh, you know, sneakers, uh, you know, one after another. That's like the, the commerce has caught up. Right. Um, and, and in some ways is really driving the culture now. So, you know, with all that context, where, where is it going? What are you excited about? Uh, what, do you, what do you want to see happen?
1: I think we're, we're in a shift right now. Um, And I think people are looking for an overnight change and not understanding the amount of infrastructure shifts that need to happen across many, many, many very big brands, not just Nike and Adidas, right? Like, so it's gotta be across retail, across ASICs, Columbia, small guys, big guys, everybody. Um, And that's going to be a few years that we're going to see that we're not just going to see next month, like everything that we, that we wanted to see. So I think that we will see these bubbles that are continuing to go up and, and to see this change that's making it more equitable as well as creating stronger stories mm. uh, because I do know that the brands at least understand right now that they have to tell stronger stories um, and more of them. And I have seen a very consistent effort to do that. Um, but I think it's going to take some time to figure, you know, they're new to this. And I think that we're seeing things like we're going to bring in 30% uh, black people but if we've not fixed retention, if we've not fixed cultural education to or community education to retain them, then those people will be gone in six months and you have to right. do that again, sure. And we lose longevity. So, I think we're going to see this kind of like up and down. We're also going to continue to see what we've seen at Adidas last week, three VPs were out, you know, and it's like every few days I'm getting text messages like, did you see this news story, this news story, this person, and we're going to see that happen too. Um, And then in the community, I'm seeing a strong drive back to product that isn't everywhere outside, to your Mm -hmm. point,
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: this desire to look for like, the small guys, I mean, Joe Freshman had such an amazing year where previously he had a handful of partnerships you know hennessy adidas um the thing that he did at project with the room like all of these amazing moments that he had but he really had a breakout moment with new balance i feel like that's when we we really understand what his product could do and we're seeing things from you know seeing kids lined up in below zero in chicago for a new balance shoe um, which Crazy. I haven't seen since Concepts was doing like you mm-hmm. know New Balance collabs way back in the day. Mm-hmm. So that energy I feel is it's coming back into play. And I also feel like you know something I heard Virgil say on Clubhouse yesterday, not in the talk we were having in a talk before, was this desire for the creator to now want to own, you know, kind of they don't want to just be the partner, the creator. Wants to own their entire voice and sure. own the process, um, and I think we're going to see a change in how talent is participating mm. um, in in the in the design process as well as the campaign conception process, which, as you know, they typically have very little say in. It's right. typically a brief that they get that. They get a check for they get the deliverables we want you to post once and use this hashtag and put this in the bio link yep. but they're not a, a real partner um and i think we're, we're gonna see that which will then in turn lead to stronger stories stronger products more emotional ties with the product
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and that original feeling of the culture kind of coming back you know when we you know, we named the band ones the band ones and we're in a culture right now where the brand creates stories and creates names and then feeds it to us, like the biohack. Right. Like, That's right. we didn't do that, you know? We, we didn't, you know, we called them the flu games, and then they were the flu game.
2: Right.
1: And it's surrounding a moment in time. And I think the more, we're getting back to the, especially in the pandemic, appreciating those moments in time Mm -hmm. and really paying attention to them and honoring them in in the way that they should instead of manufacturing new stories that don't make sense.
3: Yeah, that's great. That's great. Okay, I got to get to a a quick lightning round. Um, (laughs) So what's your favorite city to travel to?
1: I want to go to Greece. Um, So anywhere in Greece. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. That's where I'm. That's where I'm headed after we get off this lockdown. <laughs> oh, very
3: cool. That was awesome. Um, who's your favorite DJ? Uh, trauma. What's so, the? La- I mean,
1: I, I love. I love his selection and what he did on Dave Chappelle and what he continues to do today.
3: Nice. What's the last great book you read?
1: I'm. Mm, great book I read. Barbara Streisand's audition. Oh wow! The journey of her kind of being a woman in media oh, and cool. taking that so relatable.
3: Nice. Uh, what movie do you think you've seen the most in your life?
1: Dirty, Dirty Dancing. And about the book, it's not Barbara Streisand. I'm sorry, Barbara Walters. Barbara
3: bad. Walters. Okay.
1: Barbara Walters. My <laughs>
3: <laughs> very different. Um, very different
1: yeah
3: <laughs> that's great okay cool um i'm sorry tell me again the movie
1: dirty dancing oh okay. my favorite movie of all time
3: nice nice um if you could wake up tomorrow having gained any quality or ability what would it be drawing hmm. and i've if,
1: always wanted to do that
3: nice um and if i worked for you what's something i would hear you say over and over
1: Uh um probably the fuck. <laughs> 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 TF 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 in the slack all day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all
3: right. That uh, that makes a point.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Nice. Well, I know you have your uh your column on revolt. And, uh, and I know you're doing other good things, you know, across media. So how, how should everybody follow you and stay up with what you're doing?
1: You can find me on Instagram at nerdlikejazzy2z. Um, I do a lot of conversation about sneakers on Twitter. I'm Jazzy Ray there. Ray like Raekwon, R-A-E. Um, and I'm, I have a column at Revolt that's bi-weekly on Wednesdays called Kickin' Facts. Um, I'm 8. Columns deep
3: and nice super excited. Nice. Awesome. Well, we'll be following and I uh, really appreciate you talking us through all this. Some great, great wisdom here and great stories. And I hope you'll come back and uh, spend more time with us.
1: Same. Yes. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, thank you, everyone who's listened to me. And we are going to talk
3: soon, Josh. Awesome. Yeah, that was Jazare Allen Lord on Rebel Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. Leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. Hit us up on Twitter. It's at Rebel Radio Net. Facebook, same thing, at Rebel Radio Net. You can watch videos of a lot of our episodes on our YouTube channel. And most importantly, come back next week for more Rebel Radio. Peace.